You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Way back in September, okay, we started this series in Ephesians, and at that time we said that this book is very nicely divided. It's got six chapters. The first three chapters deal with what is known as our position in Christ, and the last three chapters, four through six, deal with our practice in Christ. We have the indicative, who we are, and then we have the imperative, what we are to do. And so today we actually end the first section of the book of Ephesians as we close out chapter 3. And uh, chapter 3, chapters 1 through 3, there was a key phrase that was used over and over again in there, and it was the phrase, in Christ or in him, uh, talking about all of the blessings that we have and what Paul told them and us uh, as we read it today is he told them that they were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, nothing held back. What that included is that they were chosen by God. They were adopted into his family. They were forgiven. They were redeemed. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit. They were promised an inheritance in him. And after this rapid fire list of blessing after blessing after blessing, Paul stops and he prays at the end of chapter one. And he says, I, I'm just going to stop right now. I'm going to pray that you get this because I've just said one amazing thing after another and just listed them. And I just want, I, you need to get it. I'm praying that you understand everything that God has done. And then as soon as he finishes praying, he goes right back into talking about the blessings that God has given them. In chapter two, he says, you were dead spiritually with no ability to reach out to God and God made you alive. You were separated and God brought you near. You were excluded and God included you in his family. And then when he gets into chapter three, he says, and this was all, all to display God's manifold wisdom. The, the heavenly hosts are, are watching. The, the elect angels and the fallen angels are looking and they're seeing what God has done with us, sinful humanity. And it's an absolutely amazing thing. And he said, not only that, but you've been granted access, complete and total access to the Father, any time, any place, absolutely no appointment needed. This is what we have. And so after you uh, talk about those amazing blessings that we have, what do you do? You stop again and you pray. And you pray that they would get this, that we would get this, and that we would be empowered to live this out. And so this is exactly what he does again. He finishes off this amazing section with a prayer and then a dexology, uh, a, a time of praise that we'll get to at the end. So let's read this. This is the very word of God written uh, by Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage us as the church right here in 2021. So he says this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer. It's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesians. It's Paul's prayer for us today as well. I, from time to time, I will watch a show on TV called Pawn Stars. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about um, a pawn shop in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and there's a bunch of items, cool items that come in and people are trying to sell them off. And so, and this one episode that I was watching, this lady came in and she had this, uh, it was pretty ugly. It was a spider brooch and she was looking to sell it. And so she had inherited it um, from a, a deceased relative. And she came in and she put it on the counter. Uh, and she said to the owner, Rick, she said, I would like to sell this. Um, and he's like, well, what are you looking to get out of it? And she said, I was, I was hoping to get $2,000 for it. She says, I think it's got some diamonds. I think it's got some gold in it. And so Rick picks it up and he looks at the bottom and he looks it over. And then normally what would happen is that he would say something like, uh, you want 2000 I'll give you $500 for it. And she might counter and say, well, what about 1200 And they would keep going back and forth until they reached a, a, a price that was suitable for both of them. But on this occasion, she said, I would like to get $2,000 for it. And after looking at it, he put it on the counter and he said, I'll give you 15000 for it. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you, right? Why did you jump it up 13,000, right? You're supposed to go down. The reason that he did that is because what she had put on the counter was a rare Fabergé spider brooch worth an estimated $80,000. And she had no clue of the treasure that she had in her possession. She had no clue of the worth, the value of this brooch. And Rick simply told her, Here's what it's worth. Here's what you actually have in your possession. And I believe that in a similar way, the Ephesian church and every other church that has existed in the world has little idea of the wealth that we have in Christ, of the riches that we have in Christ, of all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. They are beyond our comprehension. In fact, in Ephesians 3.19, there's what I consider kind of a humorous phrase. I know that Paul didn't mean it to be humorous, but he says this, uh, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you hear that? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing. I want you to know what you really can't know, right? That's what he's saying. This is way beyond you. You will never fully comprehend that, this love of Christ in this life. And I dare say that we will never fully comprehend it in the life to come either. We'll have a much greater idea, but we will never be able to plunge the depths of the love of Christ for us. If we just grasp a tiny bit of it, I believe, that if we just grasp a tiny bit of what it means that Christ loves us, 
I believe that it would radically transform our lives, that it would be a spiritual motivation like we have never, ever experienced before. This knowledge of Christ's love, just a tiny bit of it, would be the catalyst that would take many of us from non-witnessing Christians to super-witnessing Christians, to where you couldn't shut our mouths, from timid Christians to people who were bold and unashamed and unafraid to speak about Christ. And so this is why Paul is telling them these things and then praying that they would be empowered to know these things and to actually put them into practice. Before we get into Paul's actual prayer uh, this morning, I want to look at his posture for prayer. And we find that in verse 14 when he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now, if you were to look through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would not see a prescribed posture for prayer. You have to stand or you have to kneel or you have to be flat on your face. There's no uh, set, uh, you know, prerequisite for how you pray. The most common way that people prayed was standing. You even read in like uh, one of the parables, you know, the Pharisee stood and thus prayed to himself. The the publican, he stood and prayed. Uh, And so that's the most common one. But one author speaking about this posture of kneeling in here in Ephesians chapter 3 said this, so kneeling was unusual. It indicated an exceptional degree of earnestness as when Ezra confessed Israel's sins of penitence, when Jesus fell on his face to the ground in the garden of Gethsemane, and when Stephen faced the ordeal of martyrdom. And so the implication is that this is an earnestness that Paul has. He is on his knees praying to the Father. It reminds me this intensity of Paul in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3 when he says this, speaking about his fellow Jews who did not know Christ. Listen to him. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You can hear this earnestness. This isn't just like, yeah, I wrote the letter. It's all up to you now. It's just this, I want you to get this. I want them to come to know Christ. And here in Ephesians chapter 3, you can see the heart of a true pastor a true pastor, a true shepherd who wants the people who are entrusted to his care to get these things and then to be empowered to live them out. I said this many times throughout the preparation of some of these things that we talk about, but in my preparation this week, I just became overwhelmed again. I became overwhelmed with the magnitude of these truths and my inability to really present them. I mean, I am not going to do justice to this passage today. It's way beyond um, us. It's way beyond our comprehension. And so uh, I'm going to do my best uh, and just pray that you take the time and meditate on this passage throughout this week and all that is in here because it's absolutely beautiful. So let's go through this prayer. We're going to go through it phrase by phrase, beginning with the phrase, according to the riches of his glory. And we've talked about this before several months ago, but if you're a wealthy person, Um, you can give in one of two ways. You can either give out of your wealth or you can give according to your wealth. So for example, if you come and someone says, hey, I'm in need, you know, a charity or a church or whatever, and you give them $10, you are giving out of your wealth. 
But if you say, I'm going to give you $10 million, you are giving according to your wealth. And someone who gives $10, you wouldn't know what their financial situation is. You wouldn't know if they're rich or poor. Someone who gives $10 million, you're going to say that person is wealthy, right? Thankfully, when God gives, God does not give out of the riches that he has. He gives according to the riches that he has. And God owns everything. And so God, you, you'll see this phrase in the, the first three chapters of Ephesians where he lavishes it upon us. He pours it out, as one passage says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. He gives us more than we need. He gives us all that we need. All of the blessings and all the power to sustain us in this life and to bring us safely into the next life. So praise God that he gives according to his riches. The first thing, though, that Paul prays for here is that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being, okay? Here, Paul is not praying that God would give them riches, but rather that God would empower them and open their mind to see the riches that they already possess, okay? It's not like God is saying, hey, Paul's saying, hey, I hope God gives you riches. He's saying, God has given you riches, and I'm praying now that he opens your eyes to see the immense riches that you actually have before you. He wants them to live lives uh, that correspond to the spiritual wealth that they have been given. And as thinking about this, think about how many times we as Christians live as if we're spiritual paupers, right? We're just scraping by right? And, and it doesn't seem like we have much. We have Christ living in us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, yet most Christians don't seem to get uh, this first step of knowing uh, what God has powerfully done for them. As a result of that, what happens is that they suffer. They think they're poor when they're actually wealthy, they, uh, they suffer, the church suffers, and then ultimately the world suffers as well because we don't think that we have the, 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 the power, the riches, the spiritual blessings that God has given us, and we're not taking those into considerations because the inner man of most believers is never strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. The inner man, speaking about that, is where uh, the spiritual life exists and it's where the spiritual life grows. The divine nature um, that is imparted to every believer, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is, is at the core of the inner man. It's the base from which the Holy Spirit changes the thinking and the uh, actions of believers. Uh, it's not something, I just want to say this, it's not something that is accomplished overnight, okay? Strengthen. Think about it. If you wake up one day and you're like, I am so out of shape, right? I am flabby. Uh, I am weak. I can't even get up the stairs without, you know, losing my breath. And so, and you're like, I'm going to start to work out. Hitting the gym one day does not get you ripped, right? 
You're not just like, I worked out, now I have a six-pack, right? Now I can lift anything. What does it require? It requires you going back day after day after day, working out, lifting the weights, building up your, your, your cardio, building it up every day. The same is true with the spiritual life, right? It's not just like, man, I haven't been living for Christ. I'm just going to pray and then everything is going to be right. No, it is a exercise, right? You are exercising daily. How do you exercise? Here you are praying. It's not just I'm going to pray once. It's like I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray throughout the day for my dependence on Christ. It's, it, it comes through exercising by reading the word of God, by studying it, by meditating on it. And it comes by being in fellowship with other believers. If you've ever worked out, what helps a lot to keep you motivated is when you go with someone else, right? And you're trying to, you know, it's like, I'm just going to give up. No, 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 two more. Just do two more, right? And they're pushing you. And this is what we're encouraged to do, to stir one another to love and good works. We're working out our spiritual lives. We're, we're, we're strengthening that inner man, which is the most important thing. So many riches have been given to us in Christ, and we need to be strengthened to comprehend and appropriate those riches. We need to be like that little boy who fell into the barrel of molasses and said, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity, right? It's just like, oh, right? That's what we need to be doing. We are drowning in the riches of Christ. Lord, help me to live them out. Well, the reason that he wants them to be strengthened in their inner man by the Spirit is so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. I want you to be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is not talking about saving faith right here. Rather, it's talking about sustaining faith. That faith that we live our, our daily lives by. That faith that truly believes that God is who he says he is and that God is actually able to do what he says he is able to do, right? It's that kind of faith that you rest in completely. It's the kind of faith that causes us to grow in Christ, to make steps, to, to take risks, trusting that God is there and he's able to do what he promised he would be able to do. Uh, he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts. That word dwell is a great word. I like what one author said. He said regarding the word dwell, he said this, the, the, the dwell is a compound, that word dwell is a compound formed from two Greek words. Uh, the first word is kata, which means down or settle down, and then oikeo, which means to inhabit a house. In the context of this passage, the connotation is not simply that of being inside the house of the hearts, but being at home there, settled down as a family member. Christ cannot be at home in our hearts until our inner person submits to the strengthening of his spirit. Until the spirit controls our lives, Jesus Christ cannot be comfortable there, but only stays like a tolerated visitor. A tolerated visitor. Paul teaching, Paul's teaching here does not relate to the act of Jesus' presence in our hearts, uh, the hearts of believers, but to the quality of his presence. 
That's what one author said, and I, I couldn't agree more. In his booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, uh, Robert Munger pictures the Christian life as a house uh, through which Jesus goes room to room cleaning it out. And here's what he said regarding this. In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. In the dining room of appetites, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige, materialism, lust, he puts humility, meekness, love, and all other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities. Through the workshop where only toys are being made. Into the closet where hidden sins are kept. And so on through the entire house. Only when he has cleansed every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness could he settle down and be at home. He's got to go through it all. He's got to go through it all. It says you, if you've ever had a home inspection done, all right, because you're trying to sell your house, you know what's wrong with it, right? And you're just like, oh, I hope he doesn't see the mold up in the corner, right? Or, you know, don't do this. And it's just like, and this is Jesus taking us through our home. It's like, oh, that's, what's, that's interesting, right? Hmm. Should that be here? And you're like, oh, goodness, right? But it's Jesus doing it. Why? Because he loves us. He wants to take up residence in our home, feel it at home there so that he can do as we'll see later, beyond what we could even imagine or think. It's because he loves us. He cannot be fully at home until he is allowed to dwell in our hearts through the continuing faith that we exercise that trusts him and his lordship over every aspect of our lives. So the reason that he wants us to be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit is so that Christ may feel at home in our hearts through faith. The reason that he wants Christ to feel at home uh, in our hearts uh, through faith is so that we can be rooted and grounded in love. So that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Now I know that the way that it appears, it seems to be a parenthesis, uh, basically that you, the ones who are rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. But when, you, uh, when we are strengthened by his spirit uh, in the inner man, and Christ truly takes up residence uh, within our lives, then and only then, can we truly be rooted and grounded in love? Here Paul mixes his metaphors. The word rooted is an agricultural term. The word grounded is, a, is an architectural term um, of like a building. Uh, it reminded me of how the Psalms actually begin. The very first Psalm of 150 Psalms, uh, Psalm 1 in verse 2 and 3, it says this, speaking of the man who is blessed by the Lord, the person blessed by the Lord, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's the result? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He's rooted. He's grounded in um, by a stream of water. It further reminds me of Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 17, where Paul begins by saying this. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, 
and patience. And then in verse 14, he says this, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In verse 16, he says this, he further says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God uh, the Father through him. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do everything consistently with his character. It reflects his character. It's basically, it means that if someone looks at you, someone hears the words that are coming out of your mouth and they know Jesus, they're able to say, yep, that's exactly what Jesus would say. Yep, that's exactly what Jesus would have done. It's consistent with his character, with who he is. And when you do that, that is truly glorifying to God because you're reflecting the character of his beloved son. And it is all possible only when we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly, according to Colossians chapter 3. And when I was thinking about the words of Christ, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, the greatest commandment is what? That you love one another. That you love one another. Love is the key. If you look at the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter 5, the very first fruit is love. And then if you actually look at the purest definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you would notice that many of the characteristics that are talked about in love are actually other fruit of the Spirit, patience and stuff like that. So, the, the, so love is the key. Love is so important. In fact, uh, Dr. Barnhouse pointed out that love is intrinsic to all of the other fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22. For example, this is what he said, and I love this. He said, uh, joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness loves habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love's holding the reins. I love that. Love is so essential. When we are strengthened by his spirit so that Christ feels at home in our lives, when we are rooted and grounded in love, then and only then are we in a position to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. These four magnitudes that Paul lists, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, are really poetic expressions of the infinitude of God's love. So you got to be careful not to read too much into them. However, these dimensions can easily uh, suggest that love is wide enough to embrace the entire world. The love of Christ is wide enough to embrace the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's a love that is long enough to last forever. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love never ends. It never, ever fails. And I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said this, <clears throat> It is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it. Like eternity itself, it knows no 
bounds. It's also a love that is high enough to take sinners to heaven and seat them with Christ in the heavenly places. And it's a love that is deep enough for Christ to come down and reach to the most despicable of sinners that know that they do not deserve God's love, that they're hideous. But this is the kind of love that Christ has. It reaches down to the worst of us. God's love can reach any person in any sin. I don't care who you are today and what you have done. God's love is strong enough, deep enough, wide enough to reach you where you are. And it's the lie of the enemy that says no way, no way would God ever love you. It's not true. It stretches from eternity past into eternity future. And it takes us into the very presence of God and seats us with him in the heavenly places. It is this love of Christ that Paul wants the Ephesian believers and us to comprehend. Earlier, we talked about the importance of our love for others, okay, and the fruit of the Spirit and the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what I want to say. The love that God has for us is the only thing that makes our love for others possible. The love that God has for you is the only thing that makes your love for others possible. If you don't know or feel that God loves you, then you will have a hard time loving God and loving others. It's as simple as that. Martin Luther, the great reformer, struggled. I mean, he was in full-time ministry. He was in a monastery. He was doing everything that he could to earn God's love because he didn't feel like he had it. And in fact, at one point, someone asked him, Brother Luther, do you love God? And Luther is just picturing God as this cruel master that just waiting for Luther to mess up. And he said, love God? Love God? Sometimes I hate God. Why did he say that? He said that because he had not experienced truly the love of God. He didn't know that God really loved him. Some of you know who know what I'm talking about. If you don't know the love of God, then you're going to have a hard time loving God and loving others. But on the other hand, if you truly know that you're loved by him, believing that he is with you and for you, then you will be firmly grounded to a point where you will be immovable. You'll say to the world, bring it on. I don't care. God is for me. God loves me. Nothing, absolutely nothing can be against me. You will be rooted and grounded in the love of God. Well, all of this is the basis for us being filled with the fullness of God. And when we talk about the fullness of God, as Paul mentions here, just like the love of Christ, which is unknowable, the fullness of being, being filled up with the fullness of God is also something that we really can't comprehend. Uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, who was an evangelist in the late 19th century, often told of this testimony of a guy who came into one of his meetings and just spoke and, uh, and just talked about what Christ had done for him. Uh, and when I read this, it just, it's, it's a powerful testimony. Here's what this guy said. He said this, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. And for a year, I begged on the streets for a living. One day, I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his, his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? 
throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, oh, my son, I have found you. I have at last found you. You want a dime? Everything I own belongs to you. And the man went on to say this. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me everything. To give me everything. This is what God does for us people. We don't need to be begging. God is pouring out all spiritual blessings on us in the heavenly places. God is providing for all of our needs. We don't need to take thought for our lives, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. He provides all of these things for us. But most importantly, what he wants to do is he wants to conform us into the image of his son. He wants us to make, he wants us to be filled with him. One commentator uh, is talking about that word fullness said that it speaks of total dominance. Total dominance. Therefore, to be filled up with the fullness of God means that you are totally dominated by him. Totally dominated by God with nothing left of self. By definition then, to be filled with God is to be emptied of self. Okay? That's something that you need to think about and meditate on today and this week. To be filled with God means to be emptied of self. It is not to have much of God and a little bit of self. Rather, it's to have all of God and nothing of self. Nothing of those sinful passions and desires that wage war in our minds. From time to time, uh, my family, what we do is we'll, we'll uh, paint some portraits. Like usually around the holidays, we'll paint pumpkins or Christmas trees or turkeys or something like that. And so we'll get out this, these paints. And one of the uh, uh, colors that you use the most is black. And so we'll put that in a bowl. Um, and so then at the end of our painting, you want to clean that out. And so you got this black paint in the bottom of the bowl. And if you put it under the faucet, right, and you just fill it up to the brim, what do you have? You have a bunch of black water, right? It's really dark water. But if you leave the faucet continually pouring in it, what happens is that water gets lighter and lighter and lighter until all the black paint is displaced from it. And all you have is pure water now. This is what God wants to do in our lives as he continually pours into our lives by his spirit, by his uh, righteous acts, our sin is displaced and we become more and more like him, more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Now I will just uh, uh, admit that this is an impossibility in this life to be completely free from sin, but our goal our goal is to say, as the psalmist said, search me, O God, see if there's any wicked way in me. Are there any remnants of black sin in my life? Remove those, remove those from me. But here's the key. This is what I want you to get. Okay, this is so important. This is not to be our solitary, individualistic, isolated occupation or we're doing it all by ourselves. No, we are to do it together, as Paul says in verse 18, with all the saints, with all the saints. What am I talking about that? We can only come to a better, fuller understanding of God's love in community, in community. Did you hear that? You can only come to a fuller, better understanding of God's love in 
community. You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by isolating yourself. This happens when we sit under the preaching of the word of God together like we're doing right now. This happens when we study the word of God together and then discuss it with one another. This is what I read this week. This is what I learned from it. Here's how I'm living it out right now. It's, it, it, this can only happen when we share our knowledge of love, of God's love with others, when we observe it in our brothers and sisters, when, we're, when our hearts go up in worship to God on a Sunday morning or in a life group or a prayer meeting or whatever it is. We need each other in order to comprehend the love of God. We need each other. You need the others around you to explain what the Bible means and then show as they live it out in their lives. We all need to be around each other, urging each other onto love and good works. Now I know that with any church, there are people who may come late and may leave early, right? Leave as soon as the last song is being sung or whatever it is, and they're quick to get out. And they don't give, they don't get to know the people of God in the church and they don't allow the people of God in the church to get to know them. They're just here and then they go and they leave, never giving anyone an opportunity to get to know them, never getting an opportunity to get to know the people of God. And here's what I want to say to that. We are a body. We're a body, people. And a body is one unit with many different members and that's exactly what we are. I was thinking about this, my physical body doesn't just come together at the dinner table for a meal and a shower, right? And then go in separate directions, right? My eyes go to the books and I'm reading, my legs go to the bedroom and I rest, right? My arms go into the garage to work out. That doesn't happen much, but anyway, <laughs> my body, all the members of my body are with me all the time. We as a church should be together constantly, constantly in each other's business, constantly asking each other how you are doing. What does your life look like? How are you pursuing God? Are you struggling with anything? We're to be together. We have to be in constant communication. Um, this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what it means to be invited into and a part of the family of God. We come together. This is not, a church is not a glorified country club, okay? It's not a glorified country club. You pay your dues, you come in, yeah, I'm here, and then you leave. No, it is a family. It's a family. We are bound together. Um, the more, uh, it, this means that you don't have to go through life alone. That's one of the things that it means. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about membership uh, in the church. Uh, we've uh, talked a lot about membership. We've changed some things in the Constitution to reflect a, a, a stronger emphasis on membership and what it means. And the more I think about it, I can't help but compare membership in the church to a marriage to a marriage where a man and a woman come together and they pledge to be with one another for better or for worse, 
For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And if you think about it, that's what the church is, right? For better, there's weeks when you can't stand people in this church, right? There are, let's just be honest, right? Like that person, oh, that's a worse situation, right? Are you given permission then to disassociate from them? No. There's times when I know I, my wife, I, I tick my wife off, right? She's stuck with me, right? She's stuck with me, okay? Because she said for better or for worse. The same is true in the church. You can't just walk away from someone. You're committed to the people in this church, okay? For richer, for poorer, okay? So someone's struggling financially. That's not my business. Yeah, it is your business, right? It's your business. If they're not financially, uh, if, if they're just wasting money, then it's your business to come and say, hey, look, you got to be better at your spending. Or if they're just struggling because they lost a job, that becomes your problem. That becomes my problem. In sickness and in health. Hey, I just found out that I'm diagnosed with this. Oh my goodness. Let me pray for you. How can I serve you? Can I come over and clean your house? Can I help you? That's what it means. And if anyone ever comes up to you and they're just like, you know, and, you, and they say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And they're like, hey, I'll pray for you. And they start to walk away. Grab them by the back of the shirt and say, no, right? No. You belong to me and I belong to you. And I'm struggling right now. Pray for me. Help me. That's what it means, people, to be the church. We are bound together. And that may be scary to some, but I believe it's biblical. I believe that God is calling us to a higher standard. And so let me ask you, is this how you view the church? Is this how you view the church? Or do you view it like a country club? I just came, I saw, I made my appearance, and now I'm out of here. It should be how you view the church. The church is what Jesus purchased with his very own blood so that we could be one. <laughs> he laid down his life to redeem us out of the world and to make us one. It cost him everything. And the church is the only entity that God uses to bring his message of salvation to the world. It's the church. And so once again, I'll ask, are you connected to the church? I mean, really, really connected to the church where you are rejoicing with those who rejoice, where you're weeping with those who weep, and you can only do that when you actually know the people in the church. If you're not, then I will say this with all of the love that I possibly can, but with also all of the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, that you should and must be connected to the church in this way. You have to. You have to be. And I know, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, I know when you start to come down hard on people, there's probably people like, oh my goodness, he's talking about me or something like that. And I'm talking to all of us, right? Uh, I heard the phrase that the church is there to um, comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? A couple of months ago, we had elder evaluations, okay, where we said, tell us how we're doing. And some people were brutally honest, right? And it was painful to read those things. But do you think it's what we needed? It's absolutely what we needed, right? It's the people of the congregation saying, hey, we love you, but here's where you're not measuring up. And we're bringing this to your attention. And so that's what I'm doing here. I'm not sitting here pointing out and saying, I've reached perfection, you guys haven't. No, this is, I want you to be called to a higher standard. Obedience to Christ 
demands it. We're better together and stronger. There are no excuses. There are no exceptions whatsoever. Well, we're going to reflect on that in a moment in our time of prayer, but Paul ends this first part of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. He ends this prayer with a doxology. A doxology is uh, it's the study of praise. It's a praise. Uh, and I love this. I absolutely love this. Uh, a common thing in the Old and New Testament is that from time to time, people break out into praise for God, into doxology, if you will. As the writers of, of the Bible, as they contemplate the majesty of God, as some of the characters in the Bible come face to face with God, they just stop and they praise God. I think of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who's this man filled with pride, God humbles him to where he's driven away and he's eating grass and his hair is growing, and, you know, his nails are growing and all that stuff. He's humiliated and then God restores him and then he breaks out into doxology at the end of Daniel 4 and he says, I, I, I Nebuchadnezzar, just praise and lift up the God of heaven. Like, I just have to lift him up. Wow, wow, wow. I think of David as he breaks forth into praise or doxology as his son Solomon is being anointed as king and commissioned to build the temple of God where God will meet with his people. David breaks forth into doxology and says, yes, 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 God, you are so, so good. And I don't know if you know it, but the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, is broken up into five books. And each of those books ends with a doxology, a praise to God. In fact, I want to show you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 41, verse 13. Okay, Psalm chapter 41, verse 13. Um, this ends the first book. And in fact, if you look at chapter 42, above chapter 42, it should say book two. Book two. So here's how he ends book one in Psalm 41, 13. He says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. End book one. Book two goes through book two. Book two ends in Psalm 72. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Psalm 72, 18 and 19. Once again, it ends book two. If you were to read, look at Psalm 73, it would say book three. Here's how he ends it. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Begin book three. And if you were to look at Psalm 89, 52, that is another doxology. It's the end of book three. If you were to look at Psalm 106, 48, you would see that that ends book four. It's another doxology. And then our call to worship this morning was Psalm 150, the final uh, chapter in Psalms, and it is six verses of doxology. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what he does. In the New Testament, we have doxologies as well. One of the most famous ones that I love is Romans chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, verses 33 through 36. Um, Paul, after talking about all that God has done, we were objects of God's wrath, but God saved us by faith. God continues to save us with his Holy Spirit, and God will one day bring us home with him. And then before he gets into the practical, where he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he reflects on all that God has done, and he just says, wow. Wow, wow. And he breaks forth into doxology at that time. So Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, 
as he finishes this magnificent treaty on all that God has done, on all uh, displaying his character for all to see, Paul breaks forth into praise. Uh, there's so much richness, richness in this doxology, but all I'm going to do is read it and ask you to meditate on it. This is how we're going to finish this sermon. Here's what he says in light of everything. He's just said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, wow, what a rich, rich book. And I know that Satan wants us to forget it, forget it, forget it. He doesn't want us to think about these things and dwell. He wants us to uh, think that we're spiritual paupers, that we're poor, uh, that we're destitute, Lord, when we have all of the resources of heaven at our disposal. I pray, I pray that you would empower us in the inner man to know these things, that we'd be empowered by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints your magnificent and huge love that you have for us. We need this, and we pray that you would help us to reflect on this at this time, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.